Let's take our Bibles, open it to 1 Timothy 2, 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 to 7. Today we're finishing what we started last week. We looked at the first two verses, our duty to pray for kings and governments and all people. And today we're coming into one of the most beautiful sections in the entire Bible, God's desire to save all. And we will study this section in detail as well. So let's read together God's word and then we'll dive in. 1 Timothy 2 from verse 1, and this is the reading of God's word. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I pray that we would share these convictions, that we would be burdened for the lost, that we'd have a longing to see all people come to Christ and to come to the knowledge of the truth. May we be faithful with the people that you've given us in our lives, but then may we as a church look to the nations and desire that all people would praise your beautiful name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So God's heart, God always had a heart for the nations. As early as Genesis 12, in the Abrahamic covenant, what do we read? Genesis 12, verse 3, I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Through Abraham, someone would come that all people will be blessed in, and that person was Jesus. We read in Isaiah 49, verse 6, he says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. At the end of time, when we will stand before the throne Um, of the Lamb, we will find what we read in Revelations 5, verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. From beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, God's plan was the same. To have a people from every people, (laughs) to have a people from all people groups, all languages, all backgrounds, to worship the Lord Jesus. Now in our text, we see God's open heart for all people, right? In verse 4, God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So last week we looked at our duty. Last week was we considered what we have to do. We have to pray for all people, especially those in authority, that we might lead a peaceful and a quiet life. We looked at what that meant. 
that we have to be able to work hard to provide for ourselves so that we can share the gospel with everybody. But we also need not just to do our duty, we need fundamental convictions enabled to go to the nations, to go and to share the gospel. If you don't believe what this, these verses teach us, you will not be motivated to, to do evangelism or to go to the nations. You will be lazy and cozy in your salvation, which might be dangerously proved to be a false salvation. So here we need to test ourselves. Do we have the zeal to reach all nations? Do we at least have that zeal for your neighbor living next to you? Or your colleague or your fellow student? Or do you have that zeal to see them come to the knowledge of the truth, to come to Christ? If not, it betrays your functional unbelief that God desires all people to be saved. And that would be our second point. And we're going to consider that this afternoon. The second point is our convictions. What should be our convictions that we need to believe in order to do our duty? Remember, the false teaching of 1 Timothy was these teachers of the law and um, promoting speculation. And what false teaching does, it, it causes you to become inward. You look to yourself. You just become prideful. You think you are everything you are. But the gospel, on the other hand, makes you look outward, makes you look to God and look to other people, and you, it gives you a compassion for others that they too might come to, to Christ. So we will look at five convictions, five convictions you will need to have to be zealous to share the gospel with all people. First, the very obvious first conviction you need, need to have is God's desire for all to be saved. That should be a conviction, what we read in verse 4. God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Right at the bottom of our desire to share the gospel is this very fundamental conviction. God desires all to be saved. Now that all people should be read in the context of verse 1. What do we read in verse 1? First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, um, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, that doesn't mean you should pray for every single individual because it's impossible to do that. But what it means is all people means all kinds of people. Verse 2 clarifies for kings and all who are in high positions. So in other words, you and I should have a conviction that it doesn't matter from what kind of person or background you are from. God desires people there to be saved. All kinds of people God has a heart for. Doesn't matter the background. And, and if I could paraphrase it in the words of Paul, he would probably say Jew and Gentile. All people are Jew and Gentile, which, by the way, are all. Okay. Remember Romans 1 verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the good news of Jesus is for all because God wants all to be saved. Other texts that point us in the same direction, Ezekiel 18, 23. God says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. John three sixteen, the famous, for God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This should be your conviction. God wants people in India China, North Korea, Papua New Guinea, Japan, to be saved. He wants people there to be saved. 
God has not just chosen Israel or the tribes of Israel or the white people or the black Israelites or whatever Hebrew roots movement you can put in that category that thinks they are the only people of God. No, God wants all people. And that includes all people groups. So no social, ethnic, linguistic, cultural attribute that you might have will give you any merit before God that he might consider you worthy to be welcomed into heaven just because of your background, just because of your, your, your genealogy, for example. Remember, this was the mistake of the Jews in Jesus' time. They thought, well, surely because I'm a child of Abraham, I'm, I'm already in. I'm already in the right. I loved how John the Baptist handled that. L- listen to Luke 3 verse 8. John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. You see what they were doing? We don't have to live a holy life. We don't have to actually obey God's commandments because we're children of Abraham. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. You see, what does your genealogy count if you live in sin? Jesus said to the Pharisees, who had the same mentality in John 8, 38. Listen, he says, I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. In that context, John 8, 44, he said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. So, Just because they had the right genealogy didn't make them children of God. Beloved, here God needs to restore us and we need to repent of what John Stott called a monopoly spirit. A monopoly spirit. It's easy for people to fall into that mentality, that idea. It's only for us. We get comfortable with our comfort. Right? You should be uncomfortable with your comfort. Your lack of compassion for people, your lack of zeal or desire for others to be saved should bother you. That would be the symptoms of lukewarmness of which Jesus said he will spit you out of his mouth. Basically, are you content to go to heaven alone? Are you happy if only you went to heaven or does it hurt you? That others are going to hell for all of eternity. Does it bother you? Does it bother you that God's name is not being worshipped? That should be the deepest pain you should feel. God is not worshipped. But let me say it in a positive sense for us here right now as well. It is worth saying this, that if God desires all people to be saved, then he desires you to be saved. You. No matter your upbringing, no matter your skin color, no no matter your language, no matter where you come from, the Lord Jesus commands all people everywhere to repent and to put their trust in him as Lord and Savior. So do it now. Repent from your sins and put your trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Now, before we move on to the second 
um, conviction. I want to clarify two common misconceptions about these verses. Now, here we are going to go a bit deeper, but please stay with me. The first is an easier one, and the second one is a harder one. The first one, some people have taken these verses and have promoted what we call universalism. Universalism is the idea that God, that all people will be saved eventually. All people will go to heaven. No one goes to hell, right? Because God desires all people to be saved. Now, that's obviously false based on the numeral passages in the Bible that says that people will indeed go to hell. But the second misconception is this. These verses have often been used to refute the idea that God has chosen people before the foundation of the world in Christ to be saved. So the argument goes like this. Why would God have chosen some to be saved if he desires all to be saved? That doesn't make sense. Therefore, since it seems impossible to reconcile those two verses or those two ideas, the conclusion is that God has not chosen people to be saved before the foundation of the world. Now, one way to solve the tension is what we've already said, that the all people here refers to all kinds of people, of every tribe, every tongue, every nation. That's, a, that's already contextually a possibility. But let me suggest another solution that I think is a better solution. So everybody agrees that the reason why everybody is not saved is because God desires something else more. So everybody agrees that why are not all people going to heaven even though God desires all people to be saved, the answer is God desires something else more than the salvation of all people. Now, there's two ways you can answer that. The Armenian way would be, well, God desires free will more. He desires people's freedom more, and therefore they can reject God, and therefore not all people go to heaven. The Calvinist would say, well, God desires the display of all of his attributes more than the salvation of all people. And I think that's the right answer. The second one. And let me try and prove it to you. The best way to understand 1 Timothy 2 is in the light of 2 Timothy 2. So let's go to 2 Timothy 2, verse 24. So I want you to see that. I hope you have your Bible with you, that you can see it for yourself. 2 Timothy 2, verses 24 to 26. Now, what makes this passage so relevant is that Paul uses the exact same phrase that he used in 1 Timothy 2. He uses the same phrase, the knowledge of the truth, in 2 Timothy 2. Notice what his argument is in the, these verses. 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Did you see what happened in this verse? Notice what the text says is the final reason. Who, who has the final say, the final authority for why people repent or come to the knowledge of the truth? In 2 Timothy, we see that God has the authority to grant repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So the Bible's answer to why everybody does not believe is not ultimately man's free will. Not ultimately. Ultimately, it is God's freedom in his grace to grant repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, for the full display of all of his perfections. Now, we have to put both of these verses together. So 1 Timothy 2 is true, 
and 2 Timothy 2 is true. We need both of them. There is a sense in which God genuinely does desire the salvation of all people. This is, that's just the kind of God he is. That's, what, that's his character. Yet, God is still sovereign who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is the one who grants repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. That's true as well. So we have two truths, and we need to try and reconcile them. But in the Bible, we see this over and over again, where God would desire something, but then in his sovereignty, decree something else for a greater purpose. And let me give you but one example, and I hope this one is the most persuasive one I can give you. The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The cross is the best example where God's heart would probably be breaking, and at the same time, God wills it for a greater purpose. What happened at the cross? Falsely accused, murder, rejection of his only son. All of that is against his heart, is against his desire. What would make God happy, right? And yet, all of that is in God's will. All of that was part of God's plan to glorify himself and to save his people. We read in Isaiah 53 verse 10, plain statement, it was the will of of the Lord to crush him. You see, in one sense, it was not God's will that Jesus be crucified because it's murder, it's lying, it's, there's a lot of sin involved in the cross. In that sense, God says, no, I, I don't want murder, I don't want lying, I don't want these things. And in another sense, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the plan all along. It wasn't plan B. It was plan A. Before the foundation of the world, God knew Jesus would come and die for his people. Now again, how these two truths fit together, it's, comp it's hard for us to understand, but they're there. They're in the Bible, and we cannot lose either one. Beloved, this is so important. Don't lose either. Don't lose God's desire for all to be saved. That's still true. People from every tribe, every nation should be saved. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we go to the nations that they might hear the gospel and be saved. And we believe that God will grant repentance to whomever he wills for salvation is the Lord's. You see, our job is simply to be faithful. We just share the gospel. We just tell everybody. And God's job is to save God's job is to choose and redeem and elect and draw to himself. And we can just rest that God's purposes will be accomplished in the nations. You see, so God's sovereignty guarantees that our mission will be successful. The fact that God will grant repentance leading to the knowledge of to his people. And so keep those two in their proper place. Our job is to be faithful God's job is to save. Our job is to obey the revealed will of God. God's job is to do God. <laughs> okay? Let God be God. And let us be us. Now that's the first conviction. I hope you can see why it's so important to have this. God desires all people to be saved. That's why we go. But the second conviction, the, the next four we're going to go through a little bit quicker, is that there is only one God. Go back to 1 Timothy 2. 
1 Timothy 2. There is only one God. For verse 5, well, it just says it like that, right? There is, for there is one God, okay? <laughs> now, what that, is, that echoes the Shema of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. This is a basic conviction for us to share our faith. There are no other gods besides Yahweh. He alone is the living God. He alone deserves the worship of all people and the thanks of all people. For he created all people. Monotheism, which means the belief in one God, is the basis of world missions. If we do not believe that there is only one God, we would not go and send missionaries to the nations. But with that said, there's a third conviction we need to have. And that is, there is only one mediator. There is one God and there is only one mediator. Okay, let's say there is only one God. Couldn't we at least say there are many ways to this one God, right? It is a popular idea to believe that there is only one God, but there is enough truth in every religion that people can somehow find their way to this one God. So maybe, maybe there is a Muslim way to be saved, or maybe there is a Hindu way to be saved, or maybe there's just a moral way to be saved. Just be good. What about going to priests or counselors or... Right to have a relationship with God. And all of those things lack the conviction of verse 5. Verse 5 says what? There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one way to be saved because there's only one mediator. A mediator is a go-between between two people. A mediator is someone that reconciles you to an enemy. So there's someone that's angry with you or that you deserve uh, their judgment or their punishment, and the mediator comes and they reconcile you. That's what Christ has done on the cross. He took God's wrath on himself on the cross, satisfied it. Now we can freely come to the Father through Christ. That's why Jesus said the famous verses, John 14, verse 6. Jesus said to them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or to say it in the words of the apostles, Acts 4, 4 verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, pick up this word, name given among men by which we are to be saved. People need to know the name to be saved. Other names do not save. Muhammad does not save. Other gods do not save. Only one name does. Without Jesus, no religion no so-called God, no sincere or moral living will be good enough. That's why missions are so urgent. That's why we have to go. Because if we don't go, people go to hell without Christ. Now think about if the opposite were true. Think about if people could go to heaven without Jesus. If they could go to heaven because they've never heard the gospel and therefore they will go to heaven then we should send zero missionaries. Because think about it. If people go to heaven when they haven't heard the gospel, now we go, we tell them the gospel, and they reject Jesus, now they're going to hell. Now suddenly it's a super bad thing that you did. You've just sent them to hell. But the opposite is true. People are already going to hell, and the only way to be saved is when they hear the gospel and believe. So they need to hear. They need the message. That's the only way out. 
So here we see Christianity as both inclusive and exclusive. Well, it's inclusive because it's for all people, right? It's for all backgrounds, for all people groups. God desires them to be saved. But why is it exclusive? Because there's only one way. There's only one name to, to believe in to be saved. The name of Christ. The name of Jesus. In that way, it's very exclusive. Exclusive of all others. Except one God. One mediator. Beloved, do you share this conviction? Is that a conviction of your heart? Is that what you believe? Again, Think about if you did not believe this. If you didn't believe there's only one God or one mediator, you would not go and tell people about Christ. Why bother them? But again, it's precisely because these things are true, eternally true, that this is so urgent for us to go. Now, why is Jesus the only mediator? Because of the fourth conviction. The fourth conviction is there's only one ransom for all. There's only one ransom for all. Look at verse 6. Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Now again, just meditate on that love. He gave himself. No one took his life from him. You have this picture of all the, the, the people that are being crucified are wrestling for their last breath. They're fighting the gods. They're like resisting. And here comes Jesus and he climbs on the cross. And he stretches out his hand so that they can put the nails in there. What love is that? And yet that's what he did. He gave himself for us. And that's why he's the only mediator, because only he could pay for sins. Only one could satisfy the wrath of God. Notice that's why Paul says, he emphasizes something about Jesus in verse 5. He says, there's one God, one mediator between God and men, the man. Christ Jesus. Do you see that? So it's emphasizing his humanity. Why? Because only as a man could he have paid for our sins. Only as a man could he have represented us to the Father as the mediator. I love this quote from Anselm of Canterbury. He says, salvation could not have been done unless man paid what was owing to God. But the debt was so great that while man alone owed it, only God could pay it. So that the same person must be both man and God. What a beautiful quote, right? Only man owes God and only God can pay it. And therefore Christ is the God-man who paid for our sins. And there's only one person in the universe that's like that. There's no other God-men right around. It's only one. Only Christ has a divine nature and a human nature. And therefore, there's only one ransom for all. There's no other ransoms. There's no other way. And Paul says this about the crucifixion in verse 6. Look at verse 6 at the end. It says, Who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Think of the word testimony. Normally, we talk about testimonies as, you know, that subjective experience we have, a story we share with people. But in the Bible, the word testimony doesn't mean that. It means the shared public opinion or shared testimony of people, of eyewitnesses. Think of the Old Testament. It says on the evidence of two or three witnesses, you should give testimony. You should. So here, what Paul says is the crucifixion of Christ, the ransom of Christ, is a fact of history. 
It's something you can bank on. In contrast to the false teaching that at best gives you speculation. Like, okay, I, th- I, I guess. But here we have the testimony given at the proper time. Solid evidence for the crucifixion of Christ. Now, if these four convictions are true, if God desires all people to be saved, if there is only one God, if there's only one mediator, if there's only one ransom for all, then the fifth conviction should be yours, logically. We have one mission to go and reach the nations. Verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. The word Gentiles can also be translated as nations. The nations. Because these truths are true, Paul was appointed to go to the nations to share the gospel. Yes, his custom was to go first to the Jew, but then to the Gentiles. Beloved, these these verses are the pillars of our faith. They hold us together. They hold us up. And it, this is what is essential for you and me to believe, to be convicted of, that we would have a burden for people who do not know Christ. It is these truths you need to hold close to your heart for your neighbor, your fellow worker, the students you are working with. These truths should open your mouth to share the gospel with people. And it should open your homes to invite people in for hospitality, to listen to people, to love people. And again, where, what about you? Where do you stand with this Christ? He is the door. And there's only one door. Have you entered yet? Have you trusted in this Savior? Because there is only one of them. But the good news is that if you would do that right now, the promise is that everyone who comes to him, he will by no means cast out. So come to him. Put your trust in him and be saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, these words are eternally weighty and true for all of us, for all peoples. Lord, we know we live in a culture where we are despised for believing that there is only one God, there is only one way to be saved. Lord, I pray that we would count the cost of following you, that we would rather suffer the shame of the rejection of people than to deny you the only way. Like Peter, Lord, we want to say, if, Lord, where else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Oh Lord, I pray that you would ignite in our hearts a compassion for the lost, a desire to see them come to the knowledge of the truth, that we would pray for them, that we would be kind, not argumentative, able to correct our opponents with gentleness. And we trust that you, O Lord, may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, help us with these truths. We know we we have finite minds. We have limited understanding. We thank you, Lord, that you can guide us in all truth as we seek your word together. So, Father, use us as a church. May we become that city on a hill, that light to all nations, beginning here in Bochefstroom. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.